Welcome to episode 147. Today, get ready to be inspired by the unforgettable Nancy Motley, who will share all the small things we can do that go a long way towards student achievement. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Think about your most recent professional learning workshop you attended. If you're like me, I only remember one, or at most, two things from the workshop because those are the only things I'm able to implement into my practice meaningfully. Of course, workshops offer more than just one or two strategies, but I can only retain one or two of them. Yet these small moves are the things that have tremendous shifts in our practice that also change students' learning experiences. Nancy will provide a preview of her recent book, but get ready to pause and take notes because you will leave with so many practical strategies that will enhance learning for all students. One small move at a time. Now, on to today's podcast. I am so excited to have one of my mentors, one of my big sisters on the podcast, Nancy Motley. Let me tell you how much I love Nancy. When people say, Tan, what books do you recommend for multilingual students? I always say first the PSYOP book. And I say, if it's too much, go look at Nancy's book, Talk, Read, Talk, Write. It's the book that it works from K to 12. It's the practical application of PSYOP. And so I am so always excited and honored to have one of the greatest influences in my career. Nancy, welcome to the podcast. Oh, wow. Well, thank you, Tan. Um, That was a huge introduction and very touching. Thank you. I've never, um, I've never been told that I'm the, you know, the, the implementation of PSYOP in one book, but uh, I I appreciate that sentiment because I think you're right. We all want to do better, but it's got to be easy, right? We have to have a way to do it. So. I mean, just the title. Like talk, we talk, right? Like in that title itself, it's like, oh wait, I get it. There's chunking, there's there's intentional co-planning, there's practice and review, there's strategies and application. It's like, it's PSYOP in a, in a model that works. It's like almost like PSYOP for teachers who are too busy. Yeah, right, yeah, right, <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Or what are all, of, and not to imply this, but all of those books blank for dummies, right? Like yes. electricity for dummies or whatever, right? So I, I am, um, anyway, thank you very much. And I'm super excited to be with you today too. Well, it's an honor. Let's start with talking about, can you share a story that from your teaching practice that has informed your practice today? Yes. So the story that I want to share with you is really connected to what we're here to talk about today. But I, so in like probably three years into teaching, I was on a team of amazing teachers and we were doing PLCs long before PLCs were cool. You know what I mean? Like we would meet multiple times a week and plan together. And we really just had a, you know, a think tank is the way I always looked at it. And in those meetings, I I was kind of seen as a leader. My kids had pretty good test scores. You know, I was kind of willing to try anything out. And week after week, um, we use data to inform our discussions, right? So we would look at assignments from the week before, things like that. And the competitive side of me started to get in the way because one of my co-teachers, Miss Mayo, her kids' scores were always better than my kids' scores. And it bothered me. It was very annoying. I wanted to be the best, you know? So I decided, well, I'm going to figure out what she does differently than what I do because we have the same lesson plans. We created them together. And when I asked her about it, Miss Mayo was like sweet and kind of mild. And she'd said, I don't know, Nancy, I do the same thing that you do. And I thought, okay, well, I got to go a different route. So in the meetings, I decided I'm just going to listen to everything she says. And I have a bad habit of listening so that I can talk next, which is not really listening. Yes. 
So um, anyway, I said, I'm really going to listen. And I noticed that all of us would say something like this, you know, they really miss the questions about main idea, right? Or, or they're not really understanding context clues. But Miss Mayo's comments were different. She would say something like, um, did you guys notice on number seven, most of the kids picked B, which was, was a main idea, but it was the main idea of a paragraph. And they were asking about the whole passage. So her feedback was really kind of item analysis driven. And I thought, oh my gosh, I know what she's, she's really getting in the weeds down and dirty about what needs to be fixed. And that's when I had kind of an epiphany moment, which was my bad secret is that I hate grading papers. And I was winging it. I would go to those meetings acting like I had graded the papers that they're talking about. And I hadn't even graded them yet. I would just go, oh, I know main idea was a struggle. And I would just lean into whatever they said because I had a stack a mile long behind me in my turn-in tray, right? And so I thought, oh my gosh, I've got to fix this problem. She's Her kids are better because she's grading her papers. And I know this is a huge weakness of mine. So I had a lofty goal. I'm going to start grading all the papers before I leave at the end of every day. And I bet you can guess how long that lasted. Ton, can you guess how long that lasted? One day. Yeah, it didn't happen. Not even on the day that I had the high motivation to do it, right? So what I did was I decided I was going to play a little mind trick on myself. One thing that I do have is a tidy desk and I clean it every day before I go. So what I did was I took my kids turn in tray where they turn in all the work, the stacks, right? And I put it on my desk. Kids do not turn in work in a nice way. It's messy, right? So the visual of this messy turn-in tray on my desk all day long was there. I was always going over there and tidying it, right? And at the end of the day, I was tidying it. So what I did was I created a disruption in my brain, which was this messy tray on my desk. And it forced me to like zone in on grading papers. So that was move number one. Move number two was, Nancy, you don't have to grade all the papers. You only have to grade three. You have to grade Alex's, uh, Serena's, and Michael's. That's it. And the reason I picked those three kids is they were um, the term where I've always taught was called a bubble kid, right? The kids that barely pass or barely fail, the ones who struggle, right? And I figured I can get away with just those three. That'll give me information that I need. I don't really need to grade the rest in a timely way. Well, those two small changes, grading three papers every night before, or every day before I left and straightening up the turn-in tray turned into over time... Um, small habits that really transformed my teaching. Because what happened is after I graded those three, I had awesome information about how to reteach the next day just from those three papers, right? And then what happened is after two or three weeks of just grading those three, you know what? I'm already settled down. I've already graded three. I wonder how Johnny did on this. So I'd get curious about other kids. And over time, what that turned into is I was grading the whole class's papers every day. I was doing this big lofty thing, but not with because I put that on that pressure on myself. And then what happened is over time, I was not only grading when I'm handing work out the next day, I'm thinking to myself, I wonder how they're going to do on number eight. I wonder if they're going to get tripped up on number six. I hope Johnny remembers what I said in the warm up because that's going to be assessed on number two. Right. So it just was this very big snowball effect. But me becoming a very um, data informed teacher who was making adjustments day to day really didn't start with me saying, I'm going to be an awesome grader of papers. You know, it started with the messy turn in tray that was on my desk. So um, I just, I like to share that story because I think all of us are capable in, in, um, in the world we live in, which was overwhelmed and I can't take one more thing. And, oh my gosh, just feeling like I'm drowning a little bit. Even in that space, we're all highly capable of affecting massive change with just a teeny tiny move. Oh my goodness. Every time I talk to you, I feel like you would, you and I are just in the, like the teacher lounge and just talking about our class. Like you are a teacher at heart and you're not, a, I feel like you're, you're the, you're the head consultant at Sidelets, right? You're the head trainer at Sidelets. I'm one of them. <laughs> well, when I talk to you, I feel like you're just a colleague down the, down the hall from me and be like, I can see myself running to you, but like, Nancy, I don't know what to do with this. And you'd be like, honey, listen, let me show you how to do this part. Because <laughs> you're so practical. And the th second thing I want to say is like, there's not a teacher out there that likes grading. So you're, you're not alone. Uh, it's really hard, but I love that the way you change your, your frame about it. It's like, hey, I'm not really grading. I'm getting formative data. 
And that from that from that formative data, I can change my instruction next. I also wrote down the word, the title Atomic Habits. It's a book. Um, it's a about a, a psychologist from Stanford. He talks about like, don't try to set habits. Right? Don't try to create habits. Don't try to will yourself into doing something new, changing a habit. All you have to do is do something small. And he basically said, if you have a hard time flossing, just say, I'm going to floss one tooth. And when you somehow, when you floss one tooth, you're like, well, I'm already flossing one. I might as well floss all of them. And so that's very similar to what you're talking about. Do you want to say anything about that? Well, I appreciate what you're saying. So the, the floss one tooth comes from BJ Fogg. He wrote a book called Tiny Habits, right? And if you, he's amazing and his work definitely informed this new resource. And then you were also referring to James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, which you guys, if you haven't read it, you have to read it. Um, one of the nuggets of wisdom from his book that landed in my book is called the two minute rule, right? Whatever you're gonna try to do, it's got, you gotta start with two minutes of it. And he shares this great story about this guy who lost massive amounts of weight, but the way he started was he went to the gym for only five minutes a day and he set a timer and he had to leave, which sounds counterintuitive, right? Like he's not gonna accomplish any weight loss goals with five minutes of exercise, but Clear talks about that that first six weeks of just going for five minutes, all that was about was creating the habit of showing up, right? That's all he had to do. And once he learned how to show up, then we can habit stack. We can put something else on top of it and, and move forward. So I, I just appreciate both of those mentions that you just gave because they are um, very formative to my thinking about what I put in this book about teacher habits. So let's talk about the, the, the title then, the teacher habits. Why small moves? They're the only things that work when we're overwhelmed and exhausted and tired and don't have any willpower left in it, right, in us, right? So um, just this, this idea of small moves, I think is, I don't know, maybe it's dramatic to say it's the only way forward, but it is. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the thinking for how this resource started and how this, this kind of my next wave of, of support for teachers was, I'm doing all these trainings. I mean, you've done this ton. You go to an amazing six hour all day training or you go to a conference and you leave like, I am Superman. I'm gonna change the world starting tomorrow. This stuff is amazing. And then if you revisit yourself a year later, you might've implemented one or two of those things, but never all of it. And in my experience, when I train teachers, they leave, they, they drink the Kool-Aid, they're all excited. And then six weeks later, I get to go do an observation and a job embedded coaching cycle with that teacher. And I find that what I'm talking to them about is a lot of the same things that I, I talked about in the training, except now it's um, in context, right? So you remember in the training when we talked about speaking in complete sentences? Well, just yesterday when you, when Johnny asked you um, the question and you said yes, and then you asked the follow-up, remember his answer was some, and that's the opportunity to coach for the complete sentence. And it sounds like this. And I decided then I've got to, I've got to write down the, this is, I've got to write down these little tiny things that I find myself saying with teachers over and over again. And then the, the flip side of that, you also is, um, so much of my validation for teachers is related to the small moves they're making, right? Teachers are doing amazing things in classrooms, but they're not big and flashy, right? The, the, there's one teacher that I have that um, she is a master at um, the well-timed physical contact. And what I mean by that is she, when kids are working and she's actively monitoring, she says very little actually, but the, the well-timed touch on the shoulder, right? Or when the kid is furiously erasing something and you can tell they're getting frustrated, she'll just grab, put it, move his little hand, grab the eraser, erase it cleanly for them, put it back in his hand with the smile, right? I mean, that's a small move, but oh my gosh, what impact does that have, right? So I feel like I'm rambling, but. No, you need to know that you're motivating me. I, all I can think about is like, after two years of COVID, almost three years of COVID, teachers need to know, like all the teacher bashing that's happening, they just need to know that there are people that appreciate them and that are validating what they do. And that's what I wrote down the words about like, validating. Like, your book is validating all the small moves that they're doing. Let's talk about chapter one. Turn, how do you turn small moves into habits? Can we talk about uh, more about that message of this chapter? Sure. So um, 
what I begin with is really, I would encourage everybody to think about this question, which we never slow down enough to do it. What kind of teacher do you want to be? Right? Like if you were going to, I mean, I guess you could call it a, a self mission statement or something like that, but like when somebody talks about you and says, you know, so, um, oh my gosh, Tan is blank. What do you want them to say? What, do you, what kind of teacher do you want to be? And I'll give you an example. For me, um, a, a big thing for me is to be intentional, right? So I want to be the kind of teacher that is very intentional in all the decisions that I make. I don't want to just do it to do it. I want to do it anything for a reason. So once we decide that, and this goes back to James Clear's Atomic Habits. He says, all you have to do at that point, once you know what kind of teacher you want to be, um, you just make small moves that are a vote for that kind of teacher, right? It's like you're casting a vote for yourself, right? Um, and, and so when I think about a small move in the context of the classroom, right, this idea of habit formation or small things turning into automated uh, skills, I really have five criteria for the small moves. One is it has to benefit all learners. You and I both live in the multilingual learner space, right? But in my teaching career, I've also worked with every other kind of kid, right? So we're talking about kids who might come from poverty, kids who lack motivation, kids who might need special accommodation, kids who are super high achieving, right? You're, they keep you on your toes. So the move has to benefit everybody. It also has to apply to all content areas. You know me from Talk Read, Talk Write. I'm not going to be pigeonholed, right? So it, it's got to be accessible for everybody. And then the, the other three criteria for the small move is once we know it applies to all grades and all contents is it has to be low to no prep. It has to be actionable, something I can try out immediately. And it has to be brief. Like the, the working title of this book used to be 60 Second Solutions. So everything in the book is going to be boiled down to zero instructional time or one to two minutes at the most in order to implement this in the classroom. Oh, and so basically step one, I'm sorry, chapter one is, so those are the, that, that's kind of how I define a small move. And what we do in chapter one is I survey all the research about habit formation, like the, the losing weight books or the, those things. And we talk about what does that look like for teachers? So um, every resource I've ever read about how to turn a small thing into a habit like to automate it where you don't have to think about it anymore, the number one thing is accountability. So some examples of how teachers can hold themselves accountable because here's the thing, we're islands unto ourselves. Most of us teach in a classroom with our kids and nobody ever sees us unless they come in to evaluate us. How stressful is that, right? So, so when we think about if I'm gonna work on, uh, let's say I'm gonna work on giving my kids a purpose for um, reading before they read. That's one of my small moves, just setting a purpose. I wanna work on that. Well, how can I hold myself accountable for doing that? Uh, one way, this is my favorite way actually, is to let your kids in on the secret. Let them help you, right? Kids of all ages, you say, guys, you know what? Every time we read, if we open up our book, if I hand out a piece of paper, if whatever, anytime we're gonna be reading something, I want you to help me before we ever read. I want you to say, Miss Motley, what's our purpose, right? So that I can remember to say, our purpose for reading this paragraph is blank. And you will be blown away at how much your kids help you. So that's one way to hold them accountable. Another one that I love is enlist the help of a colleague, even if you don't see them all day long, right? So I just say, Ton, I'm really working on setting a purpose. I know you teach math and you probably don't even think about reading that much, but listen, whenever we get to the water cooler in the teacher's lounge, just say, how's that thing going? Even if you don't remember what my goal is, right? And, and that's another way that I can start putting what I want to achieve, what that small move is, that vote for myself to be the kind of teacher I want to be, um, how can I keep it in front of me all the time, right? So those are just a few ideas. There's a lot more in that chapter about how to turn something I want to do into um, a habit, uh, something that's hard not to do. I this is such an inspirational podcast. You really, you, this is like a self-help book, but more like an inspirational book for teachers. You said, who do you want to become as a teacher? And through your actions, vote through your actions. Right? And you're yeah. going to do that. That's just yeah. so inspirational. Actually, I looked at your book and I don't have an advanced copy, but uh, the table of contents has all these strategies. So when teachers read this book, it's not a thick book. Like most, all of Silas' books are really, really short. They're actionable, they're practical. And when you look at the book, the table contents, there's like a few strategies, a few pages, done, next, 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 right? And so uh, you just make it, this really is for the teacher on the go who's really busy. 
Yes. Yes, absolutely. I would. And here's the other thing that just, I've, um, just getting started with training this material, I already can tell you, I'd be willing to bet I'm going to have a whole nother addition within a year. You know why? Because the 23 small moves that I included, they're not anywhere close to an exhaustive list, right? This is going to be a place where every time I train it, teachers are going to say, oh my gosh, I like that. And here's something else that I do, right? And I'm going to get to put that in. I'm going to get to cultivate that so that all of us can grow our, our thinking about what is a tiny step I can make in the classroom that's going to move my kids forward, which is what the rest of the book is about, is thinking about, so what kind of teacher do I want to be? I want to be the kind of teacher where kids talk a lot in my class. And I want to be the kind of teacher where kids think in my class. And I want to be the kind of teacher where kids really, I, I, the last phrase I use is achieve more. But what I mean by that is just the kind of, they get the content, they leave knowing the stuff I'm supposed to be teaching them. And and so the, all the moves are, how do I turn into that kind of teacher? So let's move to the next chapter where we get a little bit more specific. Can you talk about the teacher habits that get students to talk, which you just talked about? I want to be a teacher that gets students talking. I think this idea of student to student conversation in the classroom is well landed, right? I mean, teachers know that collaboration is important and every teacher I've ever met is trying to do this and there's just pitfalls with it, right? We have with students that might not have enough English right now to be able to participate fully. We have some students that have all the English in the world. They just don't like who they're sitting with, right? Or, or we, we might have um, kids who are just kind of lacking engagement or, or, or whatever. And so um, one of the small moves that's, that's my all-time favorite is when we're having kids collaborate, like in a small group, a group of three or four or whatever, before we're going to call on anybody to share out, I'm going to let them know, hey, you guys, um, I am probably going to be randomizing. You know how I do that. I'm going to pull my popsicle sticks. But before I do that, I'm going to give you 30 seconds to prepare. And I pull a stick and it's number three. So all the number threes at the table, you guys are going to be talking, but you have 30 seconds. So ones, twos, and fours, you lean in and you help number three, make sure they feel confident. So that strategy is called prep the speaker. And what I love about this one is number one, we have increased processing time, right? Number two, um, number three gets an oral rehearsal. They get a chance to practice what's gonna come out of their mouth in a safe place before it comes out to the whole class. And the main reason I love this one, prepping the speaker is normally, if you pull a stick and number three gets called, what does one, two, and four do? They point and laugh at number three, right? They're like, ha you got picked right? But when I say your job is to help them, do you see now I've totally transformed the culture of the classroom just by saying that? Because now they feel like a team and they feel a little responsible to make sure that their number three has something great to say. So we've shifted from a, I feel singled out sort of situation to a, I work within a team and I'm their representative. All by just saying, I'll give you a few seconds to check in with your partner because A's, you're going to be the, doing the talking. I want you to feel ready. So that's a great example of a small move that takes about 10 seconds out of my mouth and it can really absolutely transform the way talk goes in your classroom. Right. I'm just thinking about how that small little move, really, you're prepping their speaker, how we can set them to be so that they're successful the rest of that time. So that they're successful, they're going to speak in full sentences. They now have a collaborative experience with others. It just makes a lot of sense. Do you want to share another one for? Uh... Oh, thank you. Another one um, related to helping kids to talk more is uh, if you're the sort of student who might lack confidence in your response, you're not real sure, right? So um, instead of calling on you and saying, Ton, can you share what you think the answer is? I'm going to change it to the small move is to allow for anyone's answer. So it's going to sound like this. Tan, I'm going to have you share. If you'd like to share yours, you can, or you can share any idea you heard in your conversation, right? So this idea that um, you don't have to take ownership over the thinking, you're just the sharer of the thinking. And for me, even as an adult in meetings and things like that, I do that a lot. I don't love my answer, but I love what my partner said. And I'll say, if I get called on to share or to talk in a staff meeting or whatever, I'll say, well, you know, what we were talking about at our table, what Kathy mentioned was, right? It's a safety mechanism, right? And, and I think bringing that into the classroom really creates, a, again, a culture where um, 
there, we're, we're minimizing the fear level or the, the negative response to kind of a, this idea of representing or sharing out what our partner said. So, and speaking of small moves and, and um, those work great together, right? So you guys can talk at your tables for about a minute. And then at the, when the minute is up, I'm going to say, okay, you guys, uh, number threes, I'm going to give you a few seconds. You guys need to prepare number three, make sure they're really ready. And threes, remember, you don't have to share your idea. You can share anybody's idea that you heard. So you see how quick that is? And that's actually two moves, not just one, but it's going to dramatically increase um, kids' willingness to, to actively participate in conversation. It uh, goes back to that concept of uh, habit stacking, right? And so yes. You're, you're adding habits for students, and then that becomes even more exponentially powerful. I'm also feeling so validated because that's exactly the same practice I do in my class. I'll call on a student and I'll say, uh, Arkad, what did Leo say? Right? And so when students know when I call on them, I'm never gonna ask them for what their idea is. I always ask for their partner. So they're actually listening more intently. Awesome, and I, I, I would agree with that. This idea of anyone's answers um, does also, um, directly address the listening domain, which is sometimes undervalued as far as a teacher's area of focus, right? Like we think about what we're going to say, we think about what they're going to say, but we're not really thinking about how well are they listening. And just the act of saying you can share anybody's idea promotes active listening. So I'm really glad you brought that up. And also it goes back to Krashen's theory of effective filter. When yes. students feeling stressed in school or in class, they're not going to participate. All their cognitive functioning skills are going to be to uh, devoted to helping them feel safe, to helping them uh, avoid conflict, to helping them avoid participation because they want to feel safe. And so that helps students participate more. And when they participate more, they learn more. Absolutely. Let's move to chapter three. Um, we learn about teacher habits that get kids to think more. Can you share just two? Sure. So um, the first one I've already alluded to earlier today in our conversation, which is it, it comes from Talk, Read, Talk, Write, and it is my all-time favorite strategy connected to reading, which is just simply saying your purpose for reading is. So setting a purpose. And over time, that's going to get um, passed over to students where they're going to start self-selecting their own purposes, right? That's where the end goal of where we want to go. But how many times have you done this? I did it all the time. So in my small group, right? I say, okay, so I want everybody to finish to the bottom of page 42, and then we're going to talk about it. And they read, and when we get to the bottom of page 42, I say, okay, so boys and girls, did anybody notice any figurative language? And what do your kids do? They go like, what? And then they start rereading 42 again, right? Where... I, all I have to do is think, what am I going to ask him afterward? Because teachers ask questions after reading all the time. And we're just going to put that at the front, right? So guys, I'm going to go walk around and check on everybody at their workstations. I want you to read page 42 to the bottom. And you're looking for one piece of figurative language. So a simile, a metaphor, look at our chart if you need it. I'll be back in just a minute. That's it. It's so easy. The challenge is automating that. Right. The challenge is how can I make sure that I'm going to set a purpose for kids habitually? And this is one where I where we can enlist our kids to do that. So um, that's the first one. The next one I want to will you be willing to role play with me a little bit? And this Absolutely. might not go over well, but we're going to give it a shot. Absolutely. OK, so I, I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions. And I know that we don't I did not give these to you ahead of time. So you might need a second or two of processing time. Feel free to take it. OK. OK. So, uh, Tan, can you tell me what one of your favorite foods is and why? My One of my favorite food is Pad Thai. I love it because it's both fresh and filling, sweet and tangy. Oh, all right. Excellent. So I'm going to ask the same question a little bit different way, okay? And you don't have to change your answer. Just answer it the way I'm at from the way I'm asking. So Tan, I want you to think about what your favorite food is. And I want to see if you can tell me five things you like about it. Didn't, didn't I already do that with the five with the listing? Well, you actually, you, what you said was that it is, uh, you gave me four. You oh, said something more. about you. So um, here's where I'm going with it. So it didn't land as well because with adults, we generally speak in a more complete way. Right. If I ask right. a kid, What's your favorite food and why? He might say something like um, enchiladas because they're yummy, right? 
the deal is I can ask the question in a different way and get better thinking by just picking a number. So in my example with you, my number that I picked was five. So I say, um, can you tell me what your favorite food is? And I'd like for you to think and tell me about five reasons why you like it. So then what does that kid have to do? He's going to say enchiladas because they're yummy. And what happens in his brain now? He's extending his thinking, right? right? So um, the strategy, the small move is called pick a number. And what that is, is the teacher in any situation, a writing, a talking, a thinking, whatever we're asking kids to do, instead of just asking the question, we're also going to ask the question and quantify the sort of responses we're looking for. Because in general, in my experience, at least kids do the bare minimum. And I don't know why that is, but they, they, they generally don't answer like Tan answers, right? They don't say, I love Pad Thai because and we have this beautiful flourishing paragraph, right? That's not how kids are, right? So, but when we say, Here, here's my question, see if you can come up with two alternatives. Here's my question, try to brainstorm at least three different ways to answer it. What, what we're training them to do is think more deeply about a topic by giving them a number, that's it. That quantification makes them think deeply like, okay, this is one, and that's another. And I think, I think I'm just a, I'm a bad role model student because I am one of those people who like to talk, so it didn't work. But with students, I can see this working with my students. I can see them, I can, I can see asking a QSSA, QSSA question and right. setting a number for that, for that question, right? And then students actually having to think about it and looking for ways to produce that number answered. Absolutely. Is this the one, is this the chapter with also fishing in it? Stop fishing. Yes. yes. I think that's like my biggest thing I need to work on. Cause when I record myself uh, teaching, I'm like, you're doing that thing again. <laughs> yes. So for, if you're unfamiliar with that, the, the, the phrase that I use for, I call it, the, the strategy is called stop fishing, which is this, or another, another way that I frame this one is it's called questioning the air. We say stuff like this, who can tell me what they remember about main idea? Right. Or or I say, um, so what's one thing you remember about fractions from last year? And I'm looking, I'm fishing. I'm just going to throw the line out and hope any kid takes bait. The problem with fishing, throwing the line out and ask, and hoping a kid takes bait is the same three kids take bait every day, all day, all year. Right. So the idea is to put in some sort of system to minimize or eliminate that, which we're all familiar with random selection techniques like popsicle sticks or wheel of names or table number and color number. There's lots of ways to do it, but the idea is that um, when we when we post a, pose a question to the class, it's my belief that it's valuable for every kid to think about it and for every kid to have an opportunity to answer it. So I've got to ask it in a way that um, nobody knows who's going to answer the question. And, and when that's the case, then we've got increased engagement. Yeah, I think fishing is, you, you, when you know that that's happening, you can really train yourself to be like, wait, let's not do that. And so in, instead of fishing, what can we do instead? So uh, my, I need help with all this stuff. Like I'm as imperfect as it gets, okay? So I was the who can tell me blank teacher. I did that all the time, all the time. And um, I just got my cup with popsicle sticks that have every kid's name. And I know it's so old school, but it still works. And you know what I did? I gave that cup to my shouter outer kid, my ooh ooh ooer kid, right? Carol Salva calls them professional answerers. I love it, right? So this, I killed two birds with one stone. I gave that kid the cup. Let's just call that kid Maria, right? And I said, Maria, every time I ask a question, whenever you hear me say, who can tell me, just pull a stick out and call a name. So what did I do there? I've got a system, but I've also enlisted help in holding myself accountable for the system. And you know, kids, when you give them a job, whatever the job chart says, they are doing that job. That is their job. The nice benefit of picking the shouter outer to pull the stick is she stops shouting out the answer. She starts shouting out the name. So I've also minimized another thing that goes on in the classroom that, that kind of can get in the way of all kids learning. So that would be my quick answer for that. But there's lots of ways to do that. Oh, there are so many, um, there's so much intentionality in all the strategies that you're sharing. Like you could see, like we do this for that purpose. It's so great. That makes me very happy because I just told you that the kind of teacher I want to be is intentional. So it really um, makes me feel awesome to hear evidence of the votes that I'm making for myself in, in the way you're hearing what I'm saying. So that's really great. Let's move to chapter four, your last chapter. 
let's focus. How can we focus on getting kids to achieve more? So before I get into this one, I just want to revisit that word achieve because I think everybody can define that differently. Um, the way I'm defining it in, in the book is really about how well are kids able to um, acquire the content of the subject that you're teaching them? So um, are they learning the math? Are they learning the um, whatever they're learning in band? Are they learning whatever they're learning in manufacturing? Are they learning the science, right? Um, and interestingly, when we get into content, normally what you get is a whole lot of content strategies, right? This is the best way to teach addition. And I'm gonna offer you none of that in this chapter. So really this chapter is organized around what are all the other factors at play when we're asking kids to learn content? So um, one example is what do we know about how, how kids or anybody remembers things? And can we teach the math or the manufacturing or the science in a way that's memorable? So it's very funny that when you sent me the email to prepare for this, you asked me to think about stories, right? Because you know why? There is so much science that says a narrative structure, a story of any kind, what it does is it activates the parts of our brain that create memories, that store memories, and that are able to retrieve memories. Well, what do we want in teaching and learning? We want kids to remember it, hold it, and be able to pull it back up again, right? So one of the small moves in Achieve More is tell a story. And what I mean by that is any piece of content that I'm delivering, if I can attach some sort of a narrative structure to it, it does not have to be elaborate, right? Then we're going to remember it. So for example, when I talked earlier today, you might remember this as the um, messy turn and tray story that I told, right? But you have an anchor for this idea of how did I get to be so good at formative assessment? You're not going to remember that part. You're going to remember what was she saying about, oh, the messy desk. And then she had to straighten it. And then she started grading. She, you remember that content. So to me, that um, is a really powerful one that some teachers and some people in general are just natural storytellers. You know, it's just, it's how they, that, how they converse, how they're built. And usually those are the people that the, everyone else has hovered around at the party, right? Because they're telling stories. So I just would encourage, if you're not that way, if you're going, man, I don't, this is a place we can be a little more intentional. I can look at next week's lesson plans and I can pick one spot and say, what's a story that I can tell? And it doesn't have to be your story. Just make one up. I do that all the time. So um, th that's, that's one. And then let me, well, I'll, I'll, let you share about that. So, and cause I know you already know that one because you told me to do it. And I was like, it's already in the book. Yes, yes. And I think it's those moments when you teach class, you notice those kids, those moments when their eyes glaze over, but you also notice moments when they're, they're hanging on every single word. And those moments are always when I'm telling stories about my weekend or when, when I'm telling stories about something that's connected to my life, that's connected to the content. They're like listening. It's the, it's the kid who like doesn't usually listen at all, but they'll listen when I talk about my prom. Or they'll listen about when I talk about my, I went shopping this weekend and it was hard to find this and that, right? Or like, they'll, it makes it personal. And so their stories are super helpful. Yes, yes, I, I, would, I would agree with that. And I think the other thing about telling stories is it, it goes back to, um, you know, your idea of it being personal, we're, we are doing far more than teaching content to kids. You know what I mean? We are growing human beings and we are the model of that for them. And so any, anything where they can see me as a, as a more complete person, not just their math teacher, right? That's only gonna help build the, the relationship between us. And we all know the research behind that too, right? That when, when kids feel loved and safe and in a relationship with a caring adult, of course, they're gonna acquire more content knowledge. What's another strategy you were about to talk about? Oh, this one's super easy. It's called smile. And you've been practicing it all day long. So here's the thing. Um, and this is where I had a little bit of anxiety in, in the production of this book, because what I don't want it to seem like is that um, I think every one of us knows that smiling is a great thing. And I think all of us do that. But you know, when we smile the most from eight to 9.05 every morning, how many of you are smiling at two o'clock this Friday in May, right? We are worn out and bone tired. 
So this is a good example. So smile. Um, another one is using a timer. There's some ideas in the book that I guarantee you are not new to anybody. It's not, it's not that I'm offering you an earth shattering small move, but what I want to do is bring to the forefront something that we all know to do, which is smile. When our countenance looks positive, learning occurs more than when it doesn't. Um, I share a story in the book that uh, my kids call it my driving face. Often in the car, my kids say, um, is everything okay, mom? And I'm like, yeah, in my mind, I'm like happy. It's a good day. We're just going to run errands. I'm not upset about anything. And they're like, could have fooled me because in the rear view mirror, they see my face is kind of crumpled up. Well, the issue is my face is like that because I'm kind of a nervous driver. I worry about all the things that are around me. So while my mood is very positive, my immediate focus is on is my face is showing that I'm I, my face is not matching my mood. And I think that happens a lot in teaching, which is we're thinking like, man, the copy machine broke down and I've got to get back to my class. So you get to your class, but you know, you needed, you know, two more packets run and you didn't have time to do it. That's what your face is showing, but you're not mad at your kids. You're happy. You're glad to see them. Everything's great. Right? So this, this one is a good example of something that we want intentionality behind. So we know to smile and we do it when it's easy, but how can I become so intentional with smiling that it is hard not to do it, even in times of stress, even in times of distraction? And that's where we would circle back to chapter one to think about what are the, the, the skills for habit formation? And one, another one besides accountability is a visual, which this ties right into with the work we do with our multilingual learners. So my visual for smiling is in every class period, Early in my career, I would pick one or two of my jolliest kids, the kids who love me and love my class and are happy to be there because they're already smiling. So every time I made eye contact with them, that was my cue to smile myself. That, that was it. Okay. Now what happened is that evolved over time because I told you I'm kind of competitive, right? So what it turned into is I would pick my most disgruntled students and they were my visual. Every time I looked at Joaquin, who comes in rumpled face and proceeds to try to fall asleep in my class every day, that's what he does. Right. So I'm like in my head, like like Jedi mind trick. Right. Like I'm trying to will him to smile. And the only way I can start doing that is by me smiling at him. Right. So he became my visual and I had a Joaquin in every class period. And every time I see him, it's my cue to smile. It's my cue to smile. One other little sidebar about smiling is um, fake smiles have the same effect. So even if you're not feeling it right, you really aren't happy. You're in a bad mood. Yeah. You know, I got in a fight with my husband on my way to work or a kid just said something that was totally rude and I'm angry and I'm writing up an office referral. Right. Um, so let's just practice. I know you, we, everybody can't see us, but like get a really mean face. You're in a bad mood. You're really mad. And now fake smile. Like I can't believe this lady might give me a smile. The fake smile, fake smiling actually releases the same endorphins in your brain as real smiling does. So fake it, even if you're not feeling it is my feedback on smiling. And the best part is students can still tell that you're smiling, even if you're wearing a mask. Yes. Oh, yes. It's the eye smile. It's a yes. Nice smile. Yes. And the way that I, the way I, I autom automatize my smile with my students is I stand by the door twice a period at the beginning and the end, just like I'm at a flight, I'm a flight attendant. Like my, my passion, be, like my, this is a secret confession. I wanted to be a flight attendant before I was a teacher. And I was like, hmm, wait, let me try teaching. And so I get to live my flight attendant self every single day when I when I stand at the door, I greet students and I say their names in a way that they can they can tell that I'm smiling their names. Not just yes. Hi, Nancy. It's like, hi, Nancy. Yes. I can't ever tell. And when they leave, I do the same thing. I love it. I love it. And what you just what you just did was you modeled also. The, so the physical movement to the door is your cue. So that would fall in. And we think about how do we build habits that would fall under the creating a visual cue and your visual cue is I'm going to go move to this door. Right. So amazing. I love it. Oh, Nancy. Well, whenever you're done with a uh being a consultant, education consultant, you can be a personal coach and a life coach. You're already oh. my life coach. You can also be like a motivational speaker. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. It's easy to um, be motivated about things that I have passion around. And I just, 
teachers are like the best people on earth and they are so undervalued right now and so overwhelmed right now. And I'm just excited to bring something to light that hopefully feels like I already do all this stuff or yes, I can do that tiny thing, right? Where they, they leave feeling just, this is doable. I can take action to vote for myself to be even better, even when I'm overwhelmed and tired and exhausted and undervalued. Whew. Where do we, can I end with this, the traffic light teaching in terms of habits, habit formation, what would you ask teachers to stop doing in terms of habits, keep doing in terms of habits and start doing in terms of habits. So it's like red, yellow, green light. Um, I would say that the stop doing the green light is um, this uh, self-judgment that we all do. So uh, for example, when we talk about building habits, James Clear talks about, uh, he gives an analogy of the rose bush. When I'm trying to do something new, we expect ourselves to be this beautiful rose bush, but how do rose bushes start? They're a seed. And then what do they become? A seedling. And nobody who's growing a rose bush ever looks at that seed and goes, I can't believe you're not a rose bush yet. Nobody does that. We know that there is a progression, right? But you know what we do to ourselves all the time, especially in our teaching career, is I, you know, I can't believe I'm not a rose bush yet, right? We we like that's too hard, that's too much, and so I'm not even going to bother with it. Like, live as a seed and and be great as a seed. So I would, or be great as a seedling, you know, that that know that we're all on a journey and we're not doing ourselves any favor by beating ourselves up, right? The, the best thing that, so I guess tied to that. So I would say, stop the kind of negative self-talk that, that we have, or, or, that I have, I know. I, I have to do this on a daily basis to this day is to like focus, like it's okay if you're a seed in this category, right? Um, and then the, 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 what, what I would do more of is as much as possible, whatever the moves are, try to have that positive lens, whether that's, whether that's gratitude or that's improvement, that's a good one for me is what I try to do in all my classes is kind of see where's there a growth point. And most of the time, it's not me as a teacher who has a growth point, right? It's one of my kids. But if we can kind of enter every class period every day looking for that, um, we're going to automatically bring more attention to our teaching. And um, I, what what's the yellow? The yellow is like something you sort of do and keep doing. Yeah. So I, I think a really good one connected to that is most of us are excellent at building excellent relationships with some of our kids, right? We've got the kids that are easy to connect to. We connect quickly for whatever reason. We have chemistry. So my, my recommendation on that one would be um, get in the habit of growing another kid or growing another relationship, right? So we're going to feel really good about the ones we have. And I'm going to think about who's my next target right? He's my next target of love and care and relationship. And that might be another way to kind of move yourself forward in a space where you're already doing a lot of really great things. And start doing. Well, see, this is tricky because that implies that we're doing something not right right now. And I just, I'm unwilling to live there. So I think, I think what you can start doing if you're not already is thinking about habit formation, which is the things you're already doing well, how can we automate them? How can we make them where the, the definition of a habit is a tendency that is hard not to do. So it's something that requires no brain power. And, and so how can I take something that I'm doing really well and make it so habitual that I've freed up brain space to do other hard things, right? You know how you drive and you get somewhere and you don't remember driving there. It's a habit. So what if there were some things we were doing in our classroom that you go, oh my gosh, I can't believe the bell rang. And all those things were amazing and highly effective. So I guess start thinking about habit formation. You know, I have a, so we're ending the podcast now, but every morning I do a little meditation. I have a little uh, nine minute timer meditation and it has a, it's called insight timer. And it has a little quote that came up this morning and it, it the quotes rotate. And this one was about Aristotle. It said, uh, he said, um, what we practice most, we become. Excellence is a habit. And yes. So you are helping us continue to be excellent. And you said earlier um, that vote for how you want to appear and just show up. You are helping us show up through this book. Already you helped us show up 
meaningfully for our students with Talk We Talk Right, but now you're showing up, helping us show up in a different way. I know that I will now share three books, and maybe this first, first one, I wish that I can go back to that first year time in 2007 and say, here you go. All you need is this book. Read Small Little Habits, Small Moves. So Nancy Motley, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much, Ton. I'm, I'm really, I'm grateful for the time and, and this, co this conversation. I hope everybody can enjoy, uh, leave it feeling uplifted. And I, I love that Small Moves is the book for the first year teacher, for sure. I mean, it's going to help everybody, but this is, this is the way in. So um, thank you for letting me share a few little nuggets about it on the podcast. And I look forward to working with you soon. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now, onto our recap. I liken Nancy's new book, Small Moves, to flying a plane. If a pilot changes direction of the plane early in the trip, just that fraction of a change in direction will have us far off from our desired destination. In the same way, a small move here and there can drastically change our practice and students' experiences. Sometimes it's not the large pedagogical changes that make the greatest difference, though they are important. The magic sometimes and the only things we can control are things we can do. Let's focus on small intentional tweaks here and there. Let's go vote through our daily small little actions for the teacher we want to become and the teacher that students deserve. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.